What we just sang is totally true. We need God. Over the last four months, uh, we've been traveling with the Old Testament people of God out of Egypt, through the wilderness, to a new place, a promised land. And it turns out that the promised land is not so much a geographic place, but it's a place where these three foundational words hold sway. Freedom and righteousness and justice. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Jeff helped us lean into this first word. I'd like to encourage us as a church, whenever possible, to bring up these three words as a public service and as an individual follower of Jesus to sprinkle these liberally in our vocabulary and conversations and use them in public discourse as often as we can. Uh, can define freedom simply as this. It is the opportunity to live into your God-given possibility or potential or promise. God creates every single person uh, with their own unique design and we are truly free when we get to lean into that design and anything that stands in the way of who are we, we are created to be, we want to get over those barriers and overthrow those obstacles to freedom. For example, if you live in a state that uh, has a school system that is a total challenge, if you live in the state of Illinois and are in a zip code where the education system is performing 50% below a zip code that's just a few miles away. That is a challenge to freedom that Christians are called to be on the front end of addressing. God's first act in bringing his people from Egypt is an act of freedom, freeing them from slavery and giving them the opportunity to lean into their potential of who he created them to be. God's second major act after freeing them and bringing them across the Red Sea is to teach them about righteousness. At the foot of Mount Sinai, God shares covenant words, words of love and relationship, and God gives his people the Ten Commandments. And they are meant to teach Israel how to be righteous. So if God calls his people to be righteous, what does this actually mean? Simply defined, being righteous is doing the right thing. We quickly equate that, however, with following the rules, just being a good girl or being a good boy or never doing anything out of line and no, 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 that is not what the Bible means by righteousness. The Bible's definition of righteousness is so much more than just blind obedience to rules. Real righteousness is the ability to do the right thing in the right way, God's way, at just the right time. The right thing in the right way or manner, at just the right time. I think righteousness has a posture too, or maybe I should put it this way. Unrighteousness has this kind of posture, kind of looking over your shoulder of who's watching me doing what, I shouldn't, what I'm not supposed to do. True righteousness has a confidence, a spine straight and shoulders back kind of posture that you know this is the right thing, how to do it, and at just the right time. When we choose to pursue God's agenda, we choose the narrow path of righteousness. The right thing, lots of times it's clear, right? The Ten Commandments, very clear outline of lots of right behaviors. If you're a kid, directions that you get from parents, from teachers, from coaches, almost all the time, that is the right or righteous thing to do. Rules are training wheels for our righteous behavior, but they are not what ultimately God wants for us. God doesn't just want 
blind, unthinking rule following. And in fact, the older you get and the more mature you get, the more situations you find yourself in where the rules might not apply. And the more mature you get, you even find some situations where the truly righteous, difficult thing is actually to go against the regular rules. Let me give um, just a few small examples. Let's say that you live in a house where you take turn washing the dishes, either with your siblings or family members or with a roommate or uh, your spouse. And when it's your turn, say on a Wednesday evening to wash the dishes, the righteous thing to do would to be to wash the dishes, to wash them right after dinner, and to wash them as well as you possibly can. That would be righteous behavior. Let's say it's your sibling's turn to wash the dishes the next day, and they're kind of hemming and hawing, but you washed it the day before, a different sibling washed it the day before that. The righteous thing to do is to actually not wash the dishes and allow your sibling to rise up and act and do the right thing in their own power at just the right time. Let's imagine a situation, however, where your sibling has just had the worst day ever. They're struggling. uh, They've had an emotional difficulty. Maybe the righteous thing to do on that time is to say, hey, brother, hey, sister, like, I know it's your turn to wash the dishes, but I want to help you. I know it's not my turn. I know this isn't our pattern, but out of love and deference, like, that's how I want to help today. That would be a super righteous thing to do, even though you have this rule that uh, your turn was the day before. Righteousness implies action. It implies doing something, building something, bringing something noble or beautiful into existence, often for the sake of someone else. This is frequently opposed, as opposed to seeming righteous or appearing virtuous. It is really easy in our modern world, on Twitter, on social media, to stake out the moral high ground by proclaiming what others can or can't do because you have this conviction or very strong opinion about what is right and wrong and clearly this other person is on the wrong side of the rule. Twitter and social media are a great place to do this, to scold other people and to yell at them. In this moment in history, it's like we're having a cultural angry off where it's so easy to present oneself as virtuous by telling others what they're doing wrong. But that is not righteousness necessarily. Talk is cheap. Righteousness, true righteousness, is doing something, the difficult thing, in just the right way, at just the right time. There is a great moment in the book of Joshua, chapter 5. This is just after the moment that we heard about in the kids' message from Beth Bardoff today, after the people of Israel have crossed over into the promised land, out of the wilderness, across the Jordan River. And there is a night where Joshua is getting ready to confront the city of Jericho. This is going to be their first sort of inroad or conquest in the land of Canaan. And here's what God's word says. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? 
Now, in the Bible, actually, the word is like this guy has a giant javelin. He is uh, casting a pretty impressive figure. And the way the sentence reads, it's like the Bible is trying to get all the readers or hearers of God's word to see this impressive figure through Joshua's eyes. So if you can imagine maybe a super tall guy with a giant javelin and Joshua, the general, approaches him and he's like, whose side are you on? I hope you're on our side. Or are you on Jericho's side? Here is the surprising reply from God's word. This impressive figure says, neither, neither, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. No wonder he cut an impressive figure. (laughs) Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Now this is holy ground because this messenger from God is righteous, because God is righteousness personified. Now notice that Joshua has this question, is this righteous, holy, impressive, angelic figure on our side or is he on the enemy's side? And the surprising answer is neither. God shows up and he is on neither side. God is on his own righteous, just, free side. Righteousness is not doing stuff to brown-nose God or to woo God into taking our side or to having our back. That is not how righteousness works. God is not impressed by even the best things that we could do. Righteousness is aligning ourselves with God's side, aligning ourselves with God's cause, aligning ourselves with God's heart. And how do we do this? By doing the right thing, God's thing, in the right way, God's way, at the right time, in God's timing. Jesus said the most important thing is wanting to do this, longing to do this. Jesus himself said, Blessed are you, happy are you, when you hunger and thirst after righteousness, because then you will be satisfied. Jesus promises that if we keep on longing for God's path, his agenda, for his will, that we will in fact find the way, or that his way will find us. This is an incredible promise. Like Jesus' way is the righteous way, and it's the peaceful way. There is no connection between righteousness and self-righteous anger. Anger fuels people. Anger fuels a community the way sugar fuels a body. It is quick and cheap. Righteousness fuels a community and fuels a person for the long haul. Righteousness always builds something better. I've been thinking a lot about the civil rights movement in the 60s and comparing it to our own struggles in this present moment. Like one of the striking things that occurred over and over in the 60s was the development of new songs that brought the community together and stated the righteousness of the cause that they're working for. We have not yet seen this in the year 2020. Um, one of the songs that has impressed me is a song called We Shall Not Be Moved. Here's just a few bars. Uh, it goes... I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom 
Woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. Another great one from Chicago's own Mavis Staples is called We Shall Not Be Moved. Goes, we're like a tree planted by the water and we shall not be moved. That is the posture of righteousness, like a tree with your roots down, knowing that you are working for the right thing in the right way at just the right time. I love those righteous words and melodies, and man, we need something similar to help fuel what we might be working for today. Earlier this week, I listened to an interview with an African-American theology professor. His name was Vincent Harding. He passed away a handful of years ago, but he was reminiscing about another kind of righteousness song called Kumbaya, and he was kind of lamenting that that phrase Kumbaya, which means uh, come by here, Lord, come around here, uh, has kind of descended into just like a, a cozy little cliche. And in this uh, interview with Vincent Harding, he reminisced about the summer of 1964 in the state of Mississippi. And he had gathered with uh, hundreds of young people who were training to help African-American citizens in Mississippi register for the vote. And as they were doing this training, um, it came to light that three of their fellow young adults from the student population, um, young people named Michael Schwerner, Andrew Goodman, um, both Caucasians from New York and an African-American guy named Jimmy Cheney um, had been arrested uh, for speeding and then released from jail, followed by the Ku Klux Klan, and then they had disappeared and actually been murdered. Victor was there when this news was shared with hundreds of people who were preparing for this get-out-the-vote movement with citizens of the United States. There was a man named Bob Moses who shared this news and then announced to this entire crowd of young adults uh, the hard truth that what they were doing was dangerous and that some of their colleagues had literally just lost their life for the very work that they were training for. Bob Moses and Victor, as they walked around over the next hour, encouraged young people to phone home, talk to their parents, but decide that evening whether they were going to stay with the work or whether for very good reasons it was the time to go home or to do something different. And as they walked around a few hours later, this crowd of young people, what Victor noticed was that person after person, small group after small group was singing words like this. In our danger, Lord, come by here. Make us stronger, Lord. Come by here. When I'm frightened, Lord, come by here. Kumbaya. And Victor Harding said, like, because I walked through this dark night and saw the spiritual power that came into the hearts of young people because of this little song, Kumbaya, that God himself got people to do the right righteous thing as a result of having this renewed wave of spiritual power come through this song. I will never, Victor Harding said, like take this song as a warm, trite cliche because I met God through this song. 
Victor Harding in this interview also used an incredible phrase that for him that night was born a new vision of the beloved community. That is a great turn of phrase. And this, I think, is what we as Americans and maybe we as a church are longing for so intensely these days where it seems like things are uncertain or falling apart or increasingly wrong. We are longing for a beloved community. Beloved by whom? Beloved by God. One of the deep differences of the 1960s and our current cultural moment in history is that the civil rights movement and the tremendous racial progress that was made in the 1960s had a deep spiritual foundation and undercurrent behind it that seems mostly lacking in 2020. We have lots of strong feelings, we have lots of anger, we have lots of disappointment, but I do not detect in 2020 this deep river of spiritual righteousness that is going to uh, water and feed what actually needs to get done right now. How can I truly give you, friend, dignity if I don't see you first as created in the image of God? If I reduce you to where you were born or what color you are or how you identify or where you went to school, if that's what I see first, all of that is in lower case. What is in upper caps for everyone who is a child of God is that you see everyone else as an image bearer or a child of God. If we are going to lean into becoming a beloved community, this is what needs to come first. A group of people, people who love Jesus, who are committed to seeing everybody else as created and beloved by God first. I think I can start to see it from here. This is where the good news comes in. And I am not embarrassed about this. I think the Apostle Paul was not embarrassed about this from Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel, this good news, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And this is what we need, amen? A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. This part of the Bible teaches that Jesus himself is God's righteousness personified. And the good news that we get to speak is that through faith opening up a window in us, Jesus himself, God's righteousness, can come and take residence and dwell within us. And here's the miracle that happens. When Jesus begins to dwell in us, we become righteous as an extension of Jesus' righteousness. Friends, in our own strength, of course, we are going to fail daily to do the right thing or to do the right thing in the right way or to do it at the right time. Miss the moment when it would be best. What are we to do about that realization? To long for righteousness more, to hunger and thirst for it more, to invite the spirit of Jesus to renew us again, to sing these righteous melodies as a way of opening ourselves up. Lord, we need you. Consider for just a moment how even this week you have failed to do the right thing. 
whether it's as simple as doing the dishes in your own house or if it's something much more profound than that. Or to do the right thing in the right manner. To do a good thing, but to do it shoddily. Or to miss the moment of opportunity when you know your family really needed clean dishes and you delayed it two hours anyways. We are failing all the time to be fully righteous. There is a simple word for that. It's sin. Sin gets in the way of our righteous longing. Here is the even better news. Again, the Apostle Paul from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. God made him, that is Jesus, righteousness personified. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. This is a miracle of transformation like no other. We, even sinful people, might become God's right thing and God's right way in God's right time. This time, right now in 2020, the spirit of Jesus lives in us and keeps showing up and whispering in us to do the right thing and to clarify the right way to do it and to shepherd us to know exactly the right moment and the right timing. Can you imagine a group of people that was in alignment around that, filled up with the Spirit of God so that they were plugged in to knowing the right thing, knowing the right manner, and having confidence, spine straight, shoulder back confidence that it was just the right time to do what God was asking. That would be a beloved community, friends. That is what I want to be a part of. Jesus says, when you get even a little hint of this, the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Will you pray with me a moment? God, we ask that you will create in us a deeper hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I ask, God, that you will give us the ability uh, to see your image, your beloved quality in everyone's path that we come about. God, desire that we would be a foretaste of your beloved community. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, friends, we are going to sing about the righteousness of God personified, Jesus, who is showing us the way and who is working little by little the miracle of transformation within us. Let's sing.